0: Welcome to Saga Briefs, where we look at the stories
1: behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Now, what have we got in today, John? What story behind the sagas are we investigating? What secrets of the deep are we exploring in our saga submarine? To what, what? uncharted waters are we sailing? What treasures will we be pulling mm-hmm. out of the shipwrecks of time to delight our listeners today, John? I, uh, I sense a theme developing. Indeed. The fact is...
0: While the characters we study in the sagas might spend a lot of time on ships, the narrative really lingers on the reality of sailing in the Viking Age for very long, which makes sense, really. Uh, if everything goes smoothly on a voyage, there's there's not a lot of narrative stakes in describing the day-to-day realities of life on board ship. Yeah, I mean, it's the same reason that novels don't contain lengthy descriptions of car rides. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but the fact is that ships and sailing were a part of many Icelanders' daily lives, And the audience of the sagas would be able to fill in the blanks about that part of the story much better than most of us can. And what we need is someone who actually does know about those details. You've anticipated me brilliantly. It's what I do. So in order to get a better picture of the world we've been studying together on this podcast, we thought it might be a good idea to call in an expert to help us better understand what life was like on a Viking ship, uh, what kinds of ships were used, how modern archaeologists can locate, identify,
1: and learn from Viking Age shipwrecks. Yes. And so, John, it is time to hoist the anchor, trim the sails, and head out to sea. Because in this episode, we're talking about sailing in the Viking Age. Uh, yes. As, uh,
0: as many of our listeners know, Andy and I are literature professors, although the extended metaphor he's working on might not indicate that. <laughs> uh, but we are literature professors with degrees in the interdisciplinary field of medieval studies. And while we may know a fair amount about literature and maybe the social or political or religious movements that produced it, our knowledge of
1: Viking Age material culture is, let's say, less complete. I think that's fair. Uh, but that's th- honestly, that's just a reality of developing an expertise, though. Something's got to give along the way. Right. You think, you think that's the only thing that we gave up to become experts? <laughs> <laughs> Besides, are you sure we're experts? I mean, the only thing I really know for sure at this point is that I don't know much about the stuff I know, but... uh I think some people would consider a couple of guys who have been studying the sagas for nearly 20 years experts of some kind.
0: Uh, I guess.
1: Or <laughs> figures of pity. Yes. Uh, but your your ultimate point is correct. Uh, while we
0: stuck our noses in books, other scholars were out there getting their hands dirty, uncovering Viking artifacts, studying material culture with the same depth that we invest in the pen scribbles of 13th and 14th century Icelanders.
1: The pen scribbles, right. Quill scribbles. <laughs> the quill scribbles, says better, yeah. Fortunately, the community of experts in the various disciplines of medieval studies tends to be really friendly and eager to share their knowledge when asked. And when we called upon Dana Dalicek to talk with us about ships, boats, and the men who sailed them, well, he graciously accepted.
0: Yes. So our guest today is Dana Dalicek, a maritime archaeologist and sailor who currently sails with the Viking Ship Museum in Roskilde and works as a consulting maritime archaeologist for the National Museum of Sweden. Dana studied ancient and medieval history and culture at Trinity College, Dublin, before completing his master's degree in maritime archaeology at the University of Southern Denmark. But that's not all, Andy. Oh. He's also a certified offshore commercial diver, an underwater welder, and an offshore yacht skipper who has excavated more than 20 shipwrecks and underwater sites from the Stone Age to the 20th century. Wow. He's sailed with Viking and Nordic boats and ships since 2013. Uh, Sailing on the Saga Osberg And then serving as first mate and skipper on the Sea Stallion The largest of the Viking ship reconstructions Which uh, you may have seen featured in television shows like The Last Kingdom
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Dana sailed everywhere from Greenland to the Sultanate of Oman On all kinds of ships In other words, he's exactly the kind of expert we desperately wanted but never hoped to get Mm -hmm. uh, To learn all about sailing in the Viking Age
1: That's right, absolutely
0: Um, All we did was read books, and look what he's been doing. You know? (laughs) But we did read a lot of books. I've read books from Greenland to the Sultanate of Amman, Andy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All from the comfort of my chair. (laughs) Well, full disclosure here, John. I was was very excited about this interview. Um, I have always been fascinated by archaeology, but ancient and medieval underwater archaeology in particular, that's fascinating Mm. stuff. And I honestly, I have put very little effort into doing much with that fascination, but... I always found the idea of diving deep beneath the ocean's surface to uncover old shipwrecks and their cargo incredibly thrilling
0: right very thrilling from your chair it's
1: well I like I said I have comfortable a, and dry
0: I like to think I've, about it yeah I think inside every historical literature professor of our generation there's a there's a little bit of an Indiana Jones mm-hmm. influence yours just happens to be an underwater
1: Indiana Jones there you go a a Indiana Jones in fact <laughs> Finn- Oh yes, yeah. Well, here's how deep that fascination runs for me, and I'm not. I did. I'm not going to mention this in the interview, but uh, I, I because it would be too embarrassing, honestly. But I'm okay <laughs> with mentioning it to you here. Um, you know, you know, they can all hear you, right? And Dana will listen to this. <laughs> that that's fine. At least I'm not saying it to his face. Uh, okay. Anyway, when my wife was pregnant with our second daughter back in 2006, I got it into my head that this girl would grow up to be a maritime archaeologist. This is so specifically this one of your three children. Well, she was the second, and I knew the first. It wasn't going to happen with the first one, so the first one will inherit the land. <laughs> so, my first step in making sure that this dream would come true was to make her a onesie with a picture of a diver holding an amphora, uh, and it had the words "future underwater Archaeologist underneath it.
0: <laughs> Future underwater archaeologists. Yeah,
1: I figured the onesie uh, would get the job done.
0: Sure, that's that's really all you have to do is just push them in that direction. Yeah. Uh, It's all downhill from there. Well, it's uh, it's 2020, Andy. That baby is what 14 now. Uh huh. How's that? Uh, how's that dream coming
1: along? Not great. Not great. (laughs) Not great at all. (laughs) She likes art, math, computer coding, and graphic novels. Excellent. Uh, So she's a good swimmer, but no interest in archaeology, ancient cultures, or diving. So, uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to live vicariously through others. Well, it's probably best that she chooses her own path, I suppose. I know, but wouldn't it have been
0: cool? I, I would. Uh, Fortunately, we have Dana.
1: Thank God for Dana. Now, this interview was a real pleasure, and there's a lot to digest here.
0: Yeah, we cover a lot of ground in this interview, discussing everything from life on board a ship to navigation to
1: working with artifacts. And I know we both learned a lot. Yes, and we hope you will as well. So, without further ado, please enjoy our special Saga Brief interview with Dana Dalachek.
0: Hi Dana, and thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, so we're just gonna dive right in here, if that's okay. Is that a is so, that a pun that we're gonna dive right <laughs> in? Yes. <laughs> I mean, the puns don't work if you call attention to them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> They're supposed to just sail on by. Uh, so, Viking ships. Uh, since we're going to be talking about Viking ships, I wanted to start right there. Right? They were they were famous, or really infamous, for showing up in unexpected places and reaching places that other ships just couldn't. Um, and just as impressively, they could return to those same places over and over again, even to a place like Iceland that was remotely located in the open ocean. So how did Saga Age sailors navigate?
2: Well, so it's, it's two very different things. One of them is, yeah. is getting to new places and the other one is sailing to places that you know. So I started with the one about, um, about Iceland um, because actually you say, oh, well, it's very difficult because it's in the open ocean. It's not. <laughs> mm. In reality, it's not that difficult to get to Iceland. Um, if you start out from the Norwegian coast, somewhere around uh, Bergen, anywhere on the, on the western coast of Norway, or a little bit like further north than Stavanger, um, if you stay within a 60-degree angle, you will hit the Faroe Islands. Mm. And from the Faroe Islands, if you stay within a 60-degree angle, you will hit Iceland by by hitting I mean you will be almost in sight or you'll right, have a right. with you'll have a bearing yeah so so you do that a few times and I mean you only have a few days to sail and you set out with the wind that you know is going to carry you actually, you have a pretty good chance of of getting there hmm. so so doing that sail is um I'm not gonna say it's not difficult but but there is a lot of things that are helping you so um getting to norway is also not that difficult i think we can see that in the saga literature that that the voyage between iceland and norway um, something that you know doing a voyage like that on a viking ship would get you onto your podcast as an interviewee today uh, whereas at <laughs> whereas you would barely get you a mention in a saga at that point it would just be that the news have traveled back and forth right so
0: so there but is the only real problem is the is the weather occasionally will will send a ship astray.
2: Yeah, exactly. So the, the weather the weather can always come in, but that's that's one of the big differences, um, and I think we'll talk about it later a little bit that of of saga age sailing and sailing today, um, time time management and how far doing that trip is from people's everyday life um, yeah. in the saga age and today. Um, but but that's that's really doing the the usual voyage you know do the, the usual voyage you get to you get to iceland there's a current running ala- around clockwise around iceland so you will be carried to sort of uh, rakness and uh, and the snaefellsnes peninsula and, and you will be will be there um, and obviously you are getting to britain you know you're hugging the coast a little bit and and mm-hmm. also you're you're not going to miss it um, I think what's very impressive or what is a testament to somebody's skill is getting to a new place. So if you are able to get to a completely new coast, if you're able to get to a completely new river or bay or or something like that and you're like, okay, well, I can sail this coast. I'm not going to run aground because I can read the waves, I can read the breakers, I can read the, the wind and I am still able to to go around the coast to surprise someone that I can scout out on the land party, and then basically get into their back. Um, I think that's, that's what's really a testament to skill. If you, if you think about today, um, there's a lot of good sailors, and you know they would go out to their races every, every weekend, but a world-class sailor can come to that race and win it on the first time. No matter that somebody's, mm-hmm. an average sailor has been sailing there for 20 years, or even a good sailor has been sailing 20 years and doing the races, and then somebody comes in who is an Olympic level sailor, and they're so good because no matter where they are, no matter what type of boat they get dropped on, they'll be able to do it. Right. Um, well, you can
0: think about the difference between uh, the various Ericssons in Eric the Red Saga. Yeah. Right. You've got um, some, some of the Ericssons are able to sail back and forth to Newfoundland, despite mm. never having been there. And then one of the Ericssons ends up in Ireland by mistake. Which uh, is yeah. really hard to do, going from Greenland to Newfoundland, and suggest somebody who isn't as able to na- navigate on the open ocean if they don't already know where they're heading.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- there is definitely why why you know you have to look at like why do those mistakes happen and are there mistakes and um, and that would kind of be like an investigation of that. I think one of the other things that that is important and also in the in the sagas that that talk about um about getting to the Americas um, the crew is always a discussion. so how many people they, they've taken and there's also these yeah. conflicts um, if, within the group between the different ships and different parties. so what we know from later norwegian laws and and from some of the sagas as well is that there has been not just a hierarchy on board but you also had some democracy on board so certain mm. decisions might have been finalized by the skipper or or the owner of the boat, but a lot of decisions were also taken by vote. So hmm. if you set out and you are highly unpopular and you can barely scramble a crew together, you might not get the best sailors. But if you want to travel back and forth between Newfoundland and you have a vessel with 60 to 80 people and 25 of them have done the journey before. Even if you make a mistake because you snooze out on your on your watch at night and you're you know you're not watching the direction or something, one of the other twenty five people who have done this voyage before will be able to spot the mistake and they'll be like, "Hey, man, mm-hmm. you're way off course." Um, mm-hmm. And then, so so it's not just I think it's important to remember that it's not just one person.
0: Right, right. So how and likely what, is falling asleep on your night watch? <laughs> 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 um, well. Uh, <laughs> I would say that it's not very
2: likely because everybody has pretty much one task on board. You, you're not really doing any more. So there's always going to be a body beside you who um, who will keep you awake. So I don't think that it's, uh, that it's very likely to, for someone to fall asleep. Usually I, I take quite well to like little sleep for extended periods of time. So I don't really have that problem. But I would also say that people who are sailing with me, um, you know, after a couple of hawkish remarks and uh, <laughs> and not just <laughs> they remember not to not to fall asleep so. right so i'd say i'd say not very likely
1: <laughs> so when when you were talking about the navigation you talked about uh taking a 60 degree angle from norway to get to faroe islands and a 60 degree angle to get from the faroes to uh, iceland how are they making sure they know exactly where they are at a given time or do they not know until they see something that looks familiar <laughs>
2: I mean, um, the the question is completely warranted. Um, just a few weeks ago, I was out with a couple of people sailing who are not very experienced, um, but they're, they're really not experienced people. And we're doing a little bit of a longer stretch. And I kind of took the position of not actually doing anything. Um, just telling them sort of what to do and what to look after. And I realized how difficult it is for a lot of people to have a feeling because what we're talking about in. Especially in this age, is the art of sailing. It's the art okay. of navigation. So we're not okay. talking about the science of navigation. We're not talking about the rules of navigation. And I think that's that's where it comes in. That if you have been doing this so much, so often, you know, mm-hmm. you will you will go with the waves. You will realize if the wind is changing. Um, you will have a feeling for it. You will have a have an eye on the horizon, and you'll be able to. Um, to hold it i mean we've been doing tests with with the viking ships um where we kind of not looking at navigation we're just going by feel and there's only one person on board who is checking the navigational instruments for safety and you know people who have been doing it for a while will will keep the course
1: that's even with the like winds changing and everything they just they notice when the wind changes so they adjust or is it just like a feeling like i know i came from there and i'm heading in that direction they just have an internal compass that allows them to yeah i mean. Um it's it's a little bit of the difference of if you're driving somewhere and you've looked at the map before
2: or you've been there before, um, and and you're going there. so there's there's that sort of person. let's say there's a taxi driver and you tell him where you want to go, and you'll get in the cab, he'll drive off, he'll drop you off at the at the spot, and then you have someone else who's looking at the GPS and will end up at a subway station, right? Uh, because mm. the GPS told him to go left, and he's just driving down the, the stairs, right? So, yeah. so I think that's the that's the difference between if somebody just uh, said, "Okay, I want to go to Greenland," and they just keep on looking down at the instruments and not actually um, not actually thinking about it, and somebody who's like, "Okay, well, if I want to go to if I want to go to Greenland, then I'm most likely going to get a current from that side because that's what I got." every year and i'm gonna get some Mm -hmm. wind from that side and the icebergs are probably not swimming up from the
1: south but they're coming from the you know it's (laughs) right 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 um so one of of the things that i'm that i'm hearing there is that a a really good sailor is able to read read the ocean um i would say that
2: if you (laughs) if you're a good sailor if you're an experienced sailor most of the Inputs that you need for sailing you have around yourself. So you have your speed mm-hmm. by looking down at the water. You'll be able to judge your speed. You know, I, I I've won quite a few beers in pubs by basically saying, okay, look, if I can guess um, down to 0.5 knots or uh, how fast we're sailing right now, you'll buy me a beer at the next port. <laughs> um, so you can, so you can see you can see your speed, um, your drift, your your leeway. So how much you're drifting, you can see if you look back. Basically, your wake is going to go at an angle to mm-hmm. your fore and aft line of the boat. And that is that is how much you're drifting mm-hmm. um, gotcha. the weather forecast. You can see by just looking out, you know, that's yes. that's the weather that you have, <laughs> no matter what what any when any weather forecast tells you, it's what it is. Um, and uh, and navigation wise, you look out and if you if you can see the coast or if you see a landmark or if you see the sun or if you see the stars then you have your chart. Um, mm-hmm. So in reality, you, you have your inputs that basically then, if you put all those inputs together, then you can calculate your route, um, you know, your track that you've done and the track that you have ahead of you, mm-hmm. and that's navigation. Whether you do it with a, with a computer system, GPS navigation, etc., or you do it um, in your head, I think um, punctuality and reliability will be the issues, but, but you can.
1: Yeah, great. Um, one of the interesting things about the, the Viking Age is the ship construction. And so I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit uh, about the construction of Viking Age ships. Uh, take us through the, the process of building an ocean-going ship. What is that like?
2: Um, well, well, it's very different today than it was in the Viking Age. Um, sure. You, uh, you've mentioned uh, Draken, uh, Harald Harfer, uh, yes. on the podcast a couple of times a brilliant vessel, but obviously when you, when that was built, um, they knew how large it's going to be, how many people are going to be on board. So they said, okay, we're going to put an engine into it, right? But the thought is similar in the Viking age as well. They know what they're building it for and that's how they will build it. Um, resources will always determine what you're building, Mm. um, today in reconstructions as well as at that time. So, um. You know, Norway had plenty of iron, they had plenty of, of timber, and that's why they could build the vessels that they did. Um, if you have plenty of large oak, it's fairly easy to get large oak planks or cleft oak planks so that you can build a clinker built vessel. If you want to build a Viking ship today, it's not that easy to get the right quality timber. And that is simply because they used it up, <laughs> the, <Right>. the Vikings. <laughs> so, um, so uh so what you would do is um okay you need to build it uh so you would gather all the men from uh from the area who can build the ship um it will always be a com a community effort um, because it requires the resources of the community not just in terms of timber and iron and wool um but it also requires manpower and and knowledge yeah. uh, so you so you need a blacksmith uh, to do all the fittings, you need a a blacksmith to do nothing else than just nails. You need somewhere around seven to eight thousand iron nails to build a long ship. That's so, a lot.
1: Yeah, that's, that's now, that. I I I gotta call this into question though because I I, I watched the show Vikings and uh, Floki was building <laughs> ships by himself. So yeah, I mean, are you suggesting that's not realistic?
2: Uh, I'm just I'm just saying that, you know, uh, there is also a crew behind the camera. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but yes, you do need for large vessels, you will need a sort of master builder. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that master builder has to organize the people uh, and the people will be. And that's according to Bülow and uh, Landlo, so the Norwegian laws of the 13th century that we have. There's a strict organization in what people do there is workers there is actual carpenters there's carpenters separately for the uh, the keel the stamp post the stern and um, and those who only do the planking um, and uh, you know there's probably apprentices that are not really mentioned mm-hmm. um, you have the blacksmith and then you have a massive army of women doing the the sales um, yeah which is. Which is once again, the sail usually costs the, the exact same as the rest of the ship together. Mm. So, even if the ship, for example, is too old and cannot be repaired anymore, you would keep the sail and that would be transferred to the next ship. So, that's mm. extremely valuable. Um, mm. And you need pretty much all the sheep that you can see around in your valley <laughs> to get the wool to actually make that sail. Um, but then, but you would. You would probably go around and say, okay, look, we need, we need a warship to go raiding or the king demands a warship from us. So we need to build it. Where do we get the timber? Okay. We have the timber ready. Okay. Let's start the building. Um, we need to get the sail. Do we have an old sail that we can reuse or do we need another one? When you have the sail, you need all the horse uh, fat to actually put the fat onto the sail. So, so you go through all that. Okay, who's going to make the tar? We need to keep all that all that bark to actually make tar, so we can tar the ship because the ship needs to be tarred immediately after it's built. Um, I'm saying immediately because that's what the documents, the documentary sources say, and that it. But it does need to be tarred and retarred. Um, you need to make the ropes. so we have a skilled rope rope maker in the area who can make large uh, large rope? Um, So all that needs to be in place when you start building. It's a massive undertaking. Yeah, it's a massive undertaking. It's it it is the most complex um, structure that that society had. I mean, this is often said that the most complex structure that anyone you know that any society had up until whatever the sixteenth, seventeenth century was the ship, and that is probably partially true. But in the Viking age, it's definitely true. Not even Mm. the churches, not even the longhouses have the same structural complexity. that, that, a, that a Viking ship would have. So, first you need to be clear about your resources, you need to be clear about your human resources, and then you need to build it. And that, that last part is actually not that difficult for them, obviously. <laughs> it's, it's a bit more challenging for us. But for them, it's not that difficult. They would, they would hammer one of those out. I think the Viking Ship Museum's reconstruction of the Skudulu 2 longship was somewhere around 100,000 hours or so. So basically in about six months, in a winter period, you can build a long ship um, okay. with with the with the people that you have around, but it also shows some of the documents. They say that all the men have to contribute when the ship has to be launched or um, dragged up on land. So yeah. it, again, it's a community effort. Um, I am certain that Loki can can build a Viking ship uh, alone, but I think that's w- more likely to be one of those. Uh, one of those crazy stories where somebody has a ship that they built in their backyard and it's about 200 (laughs) miles from the sea. So it's, no, it's usually a lot of people, a lot of materials, um, Uh and a lot of organization, uh, and skill that has been built up over, over time, but it's not actually executing it.
0: And so this is, so this is how you end up with, uh, communities growing up that are essentially dedicated to ship production, right? These, uh, towns that are that are essentially a a corporation dedicated to the building of ships.
1: Yeah,
2: I think I think you end you end up with that because somebody realized that they can monetize saving all this effort for someone else. Right. So everybody can build a ship. You know, you can build smaller boats. Say everyone can build a smaller boat. Um, they can maybe build ten smaller boats if they do it full time um and then it's just going to be cheaper it's going to be more effective so i think we see a development in in economy and and in trade that somebody realizes look i can do just this um whereas my great-great-grandfather whoever 200 years ago he could build his own boat but um but he also had to farm whereas now right. we have a we have an economy that that makes this
1: could you also speak a little bit about the different types of vessels that Vikings were using? Because obviously we, we mostly think about the the longship, the, these warships, and we have this idea of them being uh, lighter and, and yeah. going deep into enemy territory. But um, but tell, tell us a little bit about what makes Viking ships special and the different kinds of vessels that they were using. If you think about today, um, and, um, and this might not be the, the fairest
2: comparison, but... Um, But, but if you think about today, if you want to build an offshore wind park, you would need somewhere around a dozen to 17 different types of vessels. And this Mm. is just like what, what types of vessels you need. You need crew transfer vessels. You need diver vessels. You need checkup platforms. You need, um, safety vessels. You need smaller vessels, dive, you know, whatever you need. And I think that's very similar that the Viking age definitely had trading vessels. Then you would have trading vessels that can be converted to warships. Um, you would have warships that can be converted to trading vessels. You would have, in from later periods um, of uh, of Norway and Iceland, we know, and, and the Faroe Islands, you know, we know about ships that were specifically built so that people could row or paddle uh, to church. Um, mm-hmm. So, so you can specialise down the road as far as you want. You have fishing vessels that are definitely made for fish. You have ocean-going vessels. You have coastal vessels. You have uh, smaller vessels that, uh, that you really just uh, use to transport sheep, for example. Um, you, you might have vessels that you use to uh, transport not sheep, but cattle. Um, so there is a, there's archaeological evidence for, for a wreck uh, between Denmark and Germany. Where the vessel was used specifically to transport cattle. There is no other mm. uh, in the sediment. The sediment is basically just dung, just cow really? cow dung. Um, there is no other animal uh, animals' uh, dung
0: in that. It's just it's just cattle. So
2: clearly that was a cattle transport.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to think that they would have such specific vessels. I mean, you know, um, it almost sounds like it's even more sort of specifically designed than a modern, say, car, right? Where no matter what car you get, it's going to have a storage area in the trunk. It's going to have seating areas. It's going to have roughly the same construction of engine. This sounds much more kind of built to spec for a for a purpose.
2: Yeah, I think I think that that relates back to the previous question about like how you go about constructing a vessel is what do you need? So if right. you go to a shipbuilder and you say, look, I, I need a vessel, okay. You can talk about size and that will definitely be a question of resources, including money. Can you mm-hmm. can you buy a ship? But if you tell him, look, I need a I need a vessel so that I can um, emigrate with my family and everything that I have on my farm from Norway to Iceland, mm-hmm. they'll build you that vessel. If you say and you know he might ask you, Well, do you want this vessel to also come back? Or do you just want it like for one way? Do you want a trading vessel that goes back and forth? Do you want a ceremonial vessel for a king? Is it is it a present to the king, or is it the vessel that the king requires of you to have sixty warriors
0: on board? So construction is one set of problems. Uh, what about maintenance of one of these ships? You mentioned that you tar and retar these ships. Uh, what what sort of maintenance is needed to maintain these ships, and how much of that are you able to do while under sail?
2: Um, so any sort of sailing ship, right, it's, it's basically, um, well seamanship is basically about 50% sailing maybe. Um, and then, and then you have 50% maintenance and then probably a hundred percent street credit in the Harbor, depending on how well you do either <laughs> of those things. Yes.
1: Um, so. I grew up in Florida and that that is still true <laughs> down there but I think the thing that most people don't uh, a lot of the people that I knew that had had boats they they don't count on the the maintenance cost of the boat so they, they often have it for a little while and then they're like I can't handle this yeah. anymore yeah yeah no but nobody does um, I
2: own a wooden boat as well um, but so so <laughs> back to Viking ship maintenance there is let's start from the from the start of the year. So around january what you do is you make a plan so what what has broken last year and what is being repaired by the yard now as like in the winter period um the viking ship museum has a yard and they do a lot of those heavier repairs during the um during the winter and then comes uh, comes the spring and then what you have to do is you have to tar all the ropes and that means all the ropes uh, you have to basically uh, scratch off the old tar from the ship inside, outside, clean the ship, uh, check the iron nails, uh, polish the iron nails, have to tar the whole ship, you have to paint the whole ship, you have to put oil on the whole ship. Uh, <laughs> right? Um, and then the list just goes on and on and on and on. Mm. Um, yeah. And then obviously in today's world you have to check the electronics, you might, want to, might need a new radio and so but that's but that's all going on. And then it comes to launch. And then when you do the launch you need about fifty to sixty people to get a hundred foot
1: Viking ship into the water. Jeez. Um one of the sag- I mean, How far how far up are they? Like I'm I'm thinking of the you know, in the sagas, um they where they're keeping their ships. How far from shore are they pulling these things up? Oh they're
2: they're heavy, so as close as possible. <laughs> as
1: close <laughs> as possible. <laughs> so Gotcha. Um no but they they're they're,
2: they're about a boat's length away, so maybe a okay. hundred feet um, mm-hmm. for the Viking ships, roughly. Um, but what you do is then launch day comes, so you have to get all those people together. And I think there is one of the sagas where somebody dies because the boat tips and yep. the person gets crushed. Yeah, um, yeah, Ragnar saga. Yeah, it, yeah, it's in Ragnar saga exactly. Yep. Yeah. So that's again that is in the law books that you have to you have to show up when the ships have to be launched. Um, so there is there is that which I would put under maintenance. Then you have to get the rig on. You have to put up the mast, and that's a fairly easy job, um, contrary to popular belief. It's it's not that difficult. But then yes, when you go out sailing, um, there's a couple of things. One of them is that you can do a lot of repairs. So you can you can quick fix a lot of things, especially in today's world with with screws, but even with nails, you would be able to to do a lot of repairs. Um, Water tightening is not that difficult, especially if you can come close to shore. You, What you have to do is you have to move a lot of ballast. Um, mm-hmm. So, so because you have to take a lot of stuff out to see where the water is coming in, and then you have to tilt the, uh, the boat over, and then you might put tar on it, or one of the best things is you take a bucket, you fill it with sawdust, um, then you put that bucket upside down on the water, and then when you flip the bucket up upside, upside down, the sawdust would just float up into the cracks and it would seal the boat. And oh, I mean, by seal the boat, I mean, if you're taking in, like, was it last summer? Um, last summer, two years ago, Ottar was up, uh, the Skuldaloo won the cargo vessel reconstruction. We were up around uh, just south of Gothenburg uh, in the coast, taking in way too much water and a bucket of, uh, of sawdust fixed it enough that you could sail back to Anhalt and then Roskilde with Wow. little so you can do that How- handy to know such tricks oh yeah. <laughs> yeah um so you can do a lot of maintenance um the other thing was the the screw the reconstruction the um the warship um had had a problem that the mast was putting an awful lot of strain on the planks and they would start cracking along like longitudinally um so water would come in there and the mast has been shortened and the the ballast has been moved around, so there is less strain of pulling mm. the, the planks apart. But we had, first on the port side, uh, a plank cracked. And then two days or a day into the summer trip, the starboard side cracked as well. So that was suddenly, wow. we had to go into port for about three days. I got some dive equipment. The boat builders came out, fixed it. Um, so we can do it underway today. But if you think back to the, to the Viking cage, one of the things they would have done is also go into go close to shore um mm. and they would have had less of a problem with okay well it takes three days or four days to fix this up if you if you're planning a voyage for two weeks people who are taking holiday to to sail with the vessel you know they have two weeks so <laughs> um so they would like to sail um but the vikings had would have no problem that suddenly they need to move a ton of ballast i'm, I'm talking about a metric ton not just a lot but yeah. a, a ton of yeah. ballast. when you <laughs> Especially when you're, when you're one of the bigger guys on board and you tell other people that they need to do the ballast moving and you're just going to be standing on the side because you're organizing the trip. Uh, <laughs> they're going to be less happy about it. But you, you can do a lot if you, if you put your mind to it. And the same with, I think, in the, in the open ocean, like if you have to do it, you will do it. Um, and obviously today it's much easier if you can put on a, a wetsuit or a dry suit and you can hop into the water. But even then, I mean, we have from 16th, 15th century diving records, um, mm-hmm. 17th century when when Finnish divers would go down in a diving bell, you know, in just some wool clothes in the freezing water, 100 feet down, and they would Jeez. get stuff out. So I think the Vikings were hardy enough that they they would also be able to fix these sort of things. Um, mm-hmm. We also have records of them just putting massive ropes around the vessel
1: um, to basically hold it together in as a a shell you you know that things are going bad when you're saying we're gonna we're gonna put a rope around (laughs) i'm gonna go back to my car analogy
0: Uh, i had a car where i had to tie the trunk shut for a while yeah exactly (laughs) it's
2: a you know a wild tarred rope is just like duct tape Uh, (laughs) um yeah so so i think so you can do a lot of things what is very important on our ship at, at least and but but i think that 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 would be similar to many others is that There has to be somebody who is in charge, who realizes when things go wrong. So Mm -hmm. we always notice that, for example, we're taking away too much water because there is one person who keeps an eye on how many, uh, like jerks on the pump are done Mm. every hour exactly. And that will get reported to the bridge and we take a note of it. And when we see that it suddenly starts to increase, well, There must be a reason. Obviously, if there has been a lot of rain or we had a lot of choppy water, that's fine. But if it just starts to increase, then it's not fine. Um, The same way if you hear a large crack, then you report it and then it gets up. And then we say, okay, well, this was a large crack and nothing happened, or or can we see what could have happened? Um, And that not everybody starts to suddenly put different pieces of wood everywhere around the boat, but there's one carpenter And you tell that person and that person will say, well, it's fine. I fixed it yesterday or says, okay, I put it in my book. So I think you can fix a lot of things, but the organization will remain a crucial, a crucial question. Mm -hmm.
0: Now for all the skill that they had doing that um, once in a while, uh, things would not go well. And these ships end up at the bottom of the sea. Uh, You've, as a maritime archaeologist, you go about like, locating, excavating, studying submerged vessels. How do you do that exactly? Because, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's, it's well to talk about these ships, you know, sort of being very durable and very versatile. But when they do end up at the bottom of the sea, they become, over time, I imagine, very delicate uh, and have to be handled with great care. Uh, so how do you go about surveying, identifying, accessing a submerged vessel? Yeah
2: so um again there is in in archaeology people who don't know archaeology um will realize there is research so when you have an idea and you want to research for that so you might be looking for some types of vessels or you're looking for shipwrecks and then there is the more commercial archaeology or rescue archaeology when people want to build something and and you have to look in a certain area mm-hmm. there is a, there are a lot of shipwrecks in the sea. Um, millions. Mm-hmm. However, of course, the sea is also very large. So, <laughs> so it's not that easy to find shipwrecks in the sea. Um, but it's also not that difficult if you narrow it down to an area and then it becomes, again, very difficult if you narrow it down to just a specific area or just to a mm-hmm. specific shipwreck. But, um, but it's similar to... Archaeology in in Britain or or Italy, where if you want to build a road or a, or a highway, you are going to find a Roman road already there because the Romans. <laughs> um, and it would be similar if you want to build a harbour. Well, if it has been a harbour for a thousand years or six hundred years, well, there's going to be a shipwreck there as well. So mm-hmm. the way I work is is that there is a project, um, and they say, look, we would like to build a bridge over here. There are these. 15 square kilometers. And we need to know what cultural heritage, what material culture is there that we need to protect and take care of. Um, And then you go around and first you do an instrumental survey or they do an instrumental survey that will get evaluated for cultural heritage impact assessment as well. And then you can see it on the sonar, you can see it on the magnetometer, maybe on the sub-bottom profiler, if there is an object there that is an anomaly and you highlight those anomalies that you think are not trash. You know, it, could be, it could be a large boulder, it could be a fishing vessel that went down maybe only 10 years ago, um, closer to shore, it could be a shopping cart that was thrown in the, in the water, you know, various <laughs> things. Um, but you highlight the anomalies that you think need further investigation, and then one can go out and dive either with a remotely operated vehicle, an ROV, or a diver. You check those uh, those bases um, and then usually there is a survey for unexploded ordnance. So the EOD guys would do their checks or the two checks would be done in combination. And then you say, well, look, this anomaly here that is a massive magnetic or sonar anomaly, it is a shipwreck. Um, mm-hmm. And if you cannot move the bridge or cannot move the um, cable or pipeline or wind park, then it has to be excavated. Um, yeah. So it then I always
1: wonder when something like that happens um, especially in a in a a place with such a long history where there's so much of that I imagine the companies that are building these things are not happy when they find cultural heritage material under underwater It's 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 I think often what what these
2: surveys or what this work costs seems like a large number to us poor academics but to a <laughs> but to a large infrastructure oil and <laughs> gas company or whoever I
1: mean, it is peanuts, <laughs> so, right yeah. so um, but they're thinking of the time certainly yes. so what uh, yeah, time and location, yeah, so right. that's that is what is important to them, um that the
2: methodology is built up in a way that they they can they can count on time and they can they can do that well, um absolutely mm-hmm. um but then then you have located a shipwreck, and if they say, look we we cannot or we don't want to move stuff or anything then then you say, well, look, it has to be protected, and it's not enough that we put. A lot of sandbags and geotextile and anything on top of it because it is directly where you want to put an anchor or something, yeah. and then you have to excavate. And then basically, it's it's extremely similar to a um, to an excavation on land. You you start digging. You have little brushes. You have uh, you do drawings, photography, 3D models, um, and uh, and you lift the objects. What is what is very different is obviously for shipwrecks, every single ship timber is an artifact in itself. It is okay. it is a piece that has been formed by a person. And if you want to find out about that person, whether that person was the shipbuilder was right handed, left handed, um, had a tendency to do something differently than another boat builder that worked on the same vessel. Um if you want to find out exactly in what sequence the vessel was built up, then you have to treat them as individual artifacts and that does take a lot of time.
1: I think it's really interesting that you're talking about uh, you can identify whether the person was right-handed or left-handed who worked on a particular plank of wood. Is it possible that you can identify single builders uh, working across uh, many planks of wood, maybe even tracing the career of a, of a great builder by identifying or looking closely at the work?
2: Um, no no it's it, it's a much it's a much later period where you would where you would get something mm-hmm. like that I think we, we do not have enough uh, material to to pinpoint that I know that in saga literature that some of the some of the names of the of the vessels would come from the owners um, and some owners would always give the same names and often the owners would be the same person who's named as the builder so so I guess you could Find some famous boat builders who might be Loki or might not, but <laughs> <laughs> but but in but, but no, I don't um, I don't think that I can. I'm just can thinking,
1: think like of, in in manuscript think. culture or in art, sometimes right. you can tell by the way that something is written that it's the same yeah. scribe. Um, but right, you can track the career of say Adam Pinkhurst yeah. or the yeah. tremulous hand
0: or something. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, it's um, no I.
2: No, I can't. Uh, I can't. I mean, I could think of how you would be able to identify right. it, but you would have to have a a massive. You know, um, if you look at the Book of Kells in Ireland, a great manuscript, and you can identify which pages have been done by which. Uh, which right. scribe, But but you just don't have enough within within a within a vessel. You can maybe you can identify several. Boat yeah,
1: that would make sense. So that, hmm.
2: That's that's that that's that's possible, but you would not be able to.
1: You don't really have vessels that um, you can identify. Yeah. It would be interesting, though, if you could find the uh, the tremulous hand, uh, the tremulous boat yeah. builder. Right. <laughs> it's always with these Is squiggly run, lines. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, you would have to look at some, some collections um, similar to like the Oseberg, yeah. uh, like the, the Grave burials where you
0: have a ship and then you have the boats and then see if that adds up. But so. Uh, you mentioned something uh, uh, a little while ago, the, the idea that you can look at sagas and find people who are owning vessels or naming vessels. Um, how useful are the written records for your kind of work? Um, we've talked to, I guess what you would call land archaeologists uh, before, um, and we haven't really come to a consensus about how useful – the indicators in the written record are when you're actually sort of out in the field trying to find artifacts. Um, To what degree are descriptions of ships and sailing useful uh, when you look at the written record? Um, Yeah, I'm using the term land archaeologist in no way
2: pejorative for, uh, you know, (laughs) normal archaeologists, unlike the special... (laughs) No, Uh, I'm sure some terrestrial archaeology colleagues, they, they are listening as well.
1: But... The,
0: the, I'm now picturing a bar populated entirely by land and maritime archaeologists.
1: They each have their own side.
0: <laughs> the kinds of, of, of turf wars you'd get. Into. Well, I think if if
1: there were uh, turf wars, I suppose if there were land archaeology and uh, and maritime archaeology gangs, I don't think they'd be in the same bar. They'd have their own bars across <laughs> the street from each other. Yeah,
2: across the river. Like yeah, yeah. And right. Occasionally, they'd yeah. come yeah. out and yeah. fight. Um, but to answer the question. Um, with the saga literature, I think it is very helpful, but mostly to complement not the, not only the archeological records, but the anthropological research. So Mm -hmm. it's extremely helpful to look at the 19th century Nordic boat building, because the tradition has transferred so many things. And then if you look at the sagas and then you look at the language of the, the 19th century or the 18th century, then you work your way back. And then the picture becomes whole so there's a couple of very very good works on um, sailing in the sagas or how the sagas can be used to look at maritime history rather than archaeology mm-hmm. um, one of them is from nineteen twelve and I think only available in like either Norwegian or danish and uh, and German um mm-hmm. but but the, there is definitely information in there that's there's no no question about it it's uh it's useful but a but at the, at the moment, I think archaeology is also developing so much in terms of digital reconstruction and documentation techniques that, um, that for some things you simply don't need the documentary sources because you need them to, to maybe double-check or to, to prove them by archaeology rather than to prove uh-huh. the archaeology by uh-huh. the documentary source. Right, right. Um, but at the same time, for later periods, so not talking about the the Viking age, the saga period, but talking um, talking about maybe um, the seventeenth century, the eighteenth century, um, documentary and other sources to complement the archaeology and cross-check them becomes extremely valuable. Um, obviously, the people who are looking for massive gold finds in the Caribbean will start with archival research, um, but it's also um, very exciting and very fun. So that when when we have found a shipwreck in the Baltic, um, mm. it was it was great. You know, you see cannons. You're, uh, and then uh, my professor was able to uh, to say, "Oh well, I think I've read something about a boat going down around there." When I wrote my PhD thesis, so going back to the to the national archives in uh, in Denmark and combing through a couple of the a couple of the files. I actually found the log of the um, of the ship that sank. That ship that we found, and the first mate, no second mate, on that vessel actually had a drawing of that vessel that went down. Oh wow! Just maybe like a few months before. So, um, yeah, that was a pretty that's it was a pretty complete picture uh, in in every (laughs) sense of the world. Uh, Yeah, so. uh,
1: so in, in terms of in terms of like uh, the Viking Age stuff, if we, if we look at the sagas, which are obviously written hundreds of years after um, the Viking Age, um, but is there a particular saga that you have read and you think to yourself, well that that's a, a decent description of my experience on of a Viking Age boat? Um, I have to admit like I, I've read a, f-
2: a few sagas, but I only started listening to your podcast in um. November last year. So I have done nothing else uh, on my weekly commute between Gothenburg and Copenhagen than listen to Saga. Think to catch up.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. So you'll so, be bringing sagas with you on your next long boat. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: So I, um, yeah, I think uh, you know sometimes they describe the cold, and sometimes uh, they describe all how the, the bad winds came up, or, or this, they describe a, a shipwrecking scenario, or mm-hmm. um, or when they describe sailing along the coast. that, that that really that resonates because that is really what you what you see. I think one of the one of the massive differences between our experience of sailing and the sailing that is described in in the saga literature is just that you know I go out sailing a Viking ship maybe um, a month at the, this time because yeah at the best of times when I was working full time as a skipper you know it would be from April to October mm-hmm. on a daily basis pretty much. Um, but at this time, let's say I go out maybe four weeks, three weeks a year, um, they would do it every year, every month, most of the weeks. So describing the voyage from, from Iceland to Norway or from Norway to Iceland to an Icelander who most likely has done that voyage themselves, maybe twice even, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody knows what they're talking about. So it's yeah. enough to say, well, <laughs> the voyage happened, whereas, whereas today, you know, you would make, uh, youtube videos out of it you would do like extra photo albums oh, yeah. where, you know it's... so i think um i think that's why it's very difficult to to accept the normality uh, of, of those long ocean voyages in the sagas because it's just not normal to us
0: mm.
2: maybe maybe one of the things about the sailing uh, just is, is just to um and that also relates to the saga of the um the vinland saga and anything that involves being being adrift and getting off off track is is again the patience question yeah i think i i wanted to point it out that that you know today if we we carry for example two days worth of food three days worth of food on board at all times you know, you know we have the sort of army ration packs like if anything happens you know we still have that um but we're so close to shore it's so easy to go in um, there's also some insurance questions. How many, uh, you know, we have to be at least fifty-five on board to be able to sail more than fourteen hours in one leg mm. without going to shore. So, but but you know, we we rarely say, okay, well, let's just drift around here and wait for wind. And I think that, um, that for many of the um, of the saga age, Viking age sailors, if they get blown away from from their original course, whether they notice or they don't notice it. Um, that's sort of like okay, well, let's just heave to or or take down a sail, do whatever, you, you know, and just wait. I think that um, that solution to the, to the problem that that's dealing with uh, with the realities that you cannot really change, whether there is a religious background to it, like okay, this is what the gods want us want for us or something, or um, I think that's uh, uh, that's a big difference. To, to well, today. I think
0: just at a very basic level, it speaks to a different relationship to time uh, that people had. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, our relationship to time is is much more mechanical. It's much more uh, if I'm going to if I'm going to accomplish a thing, I have a set amount of time I ex- expect that to take, and I get very frustrated with any anything that gets in the way of that schedule. And there's just a very different relationship to the amount of time things take, and the and the relationship that your life has to times of day times of year uh, that that you have to you have to accept if you're living in a world at which you're still very much at the at the mercy of these elements. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Also, maybe problem solving in, in terms of sailing, not,
2: not in the general, like you say that the general populace has a, has a different but but in terms of problem solving, I think with, with Viking Age sailors, you know, they said, Well, look, this is what we have, there is the ropes that you duct tape around your, your vessel or <laughs> whatever it is. But um, it's difficult to i think it's it's only really racing vessels of today uh, or racing sailors of today that can compare to the viking age sailors because mm. racing sailors they would prepare such minute details of their vessel you know where you put some tape around a little screw so the sea doesn't get caught on it or so because that second counts or that mm-hmm. 0.1 knot that you drop in speed that counts uh, because over Two weeks that's going to be 50 miles or something like that um, I think Viking Age sailors and today's sailing the replicas as well you have to plan for much more minute details and if you if you didn't plan for it if you don't have the tool you are uh, sometimes unlikely to be able to solve the problem if you, if you hmm. uh, even if you're the best at improvisation is like there might be a problem that you just cannot uh, cannot right. solve yeah, yeah.
1: And we see uh, just from the sagas how many shipwreck. I mean, it seems like everyone's shipwrecking <laughs> all the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which leads to a lot of work for you now, which is great. So, yeah, which is, yeah, <laughs> it's it's brilliant.
2: But I, I think it's also, I don't know about. The, I think the shipwreckings that are named or whatever percentage is named, um, it's also important that that you know it's a it's a narrative tool. Yes, right? of course. The, the, the hero sure. has to travel to Norway. Um, you know. It, you can travel to, to Norway, be the Viking ship from Iceland if you want to make a nice YouTube video today, but you don't have to. Yeah. But it's necessary for the story to, to happen. So it's a narrative tool um, and um, and the conflict has to arise so that the news have, exactly. have to travel so that the conflict arises.
1: But I think you mentioned earlier the the kind of anthropological use of, of, uh, uh, of the sagas and the fact that they include them suggests that there are that that's a believable kind of event for for that time period, right? That people are used to yeah. hearing about shipwrecks. Um, so you say, yes. okay, this yeah. that's what's going to happen. But obviously, yes, the, um, it, it's yeah. a useful narrative tool.
2: Yeah, I think I think what what I am missing from the saga sometimes is is the uh, is having sail. Maybe it's because sailing was so normal to them, but having sailing as a skill as as being something extraordinary. You know, you don't describe um, Harald Harfar or Eric the Rad as the world's greatest sailor, right? A disused a is a definition of of a, of a skipper of like the best skipper of the right. of the vessel and having the best crew or so. Um, they never, you know, they might battle a talking polar bear in the sagas, but it, their their skill is never put to test. Like, can you can you do the quickest passage between Norway and uh, the Shetland Islands or so? Right. Right. Yeah. So there's never a sailing race in that. I,
1: I think a lot of the a lot of that stuff like there's there's so much missing detail, especially of of um, just day to day life, but also the the, the 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 little details of of how you sail the ship or or what makes a person a good sailor or even what makes a good person a good warrior. And I and I always wonder a lot of that come, must come down to the limited experience of the guy who's sitting there writing it, right? Like John and I don't know a <laughs> yeah. lot about sailing ships, but we know a lot about literature. Because we sit around and read books all the time, right? So that that's who's writing these books is guys who, who have read a lot. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. To speak to what you're saying, so the when Ivan is traveling with his polar bear, right? There's uh, it's unlikely the person writing the story would know how you transport a polar bear by yeah. ship. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it just it just happens. It, yeah. right? He just gets on the ship, gets yeah. off the ship. Uh, it's, these aren't details that the author is going to concern himself no. with. No, nobody knows how you transport the polar
2: bear by, by right. I, I mean I, I've seen I've seen polar bears along along the Greenland coast north the Greenland from from my vessel and uh, you know you you want to you want to keep a safe distance you don't want to like think about oh, how, how do I get this on board like,
1: I mean did you ever consider though that if you if you sailed over there and captured it that would be like a great gift for uh, a politician in your region <laughs>
2: Um, no, I think I considered that it would be an environmental crime, but, you know... Uh, Well, I mean, I guess that's the difference (laughs) between
1: you and the Vikings. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) Speaking of what the sagas describe, um, I'm curious what life was like on board ships. Um, what does a typical day look like for a, a Viking Age sailor? And how does it compare to your experiences? Well, a typical day
2: would, uh, would probably start with, um... Start on land. So again, big difference between the voyage across the North Sea and then the voyage along the shore. Mm-hmm. If you're along the shore, you're most likely going to pull into shore for the night. Yeah. There's no yeah. point. There is no point risking hitting a rock, hitting a sandbank, anything like that. Um, so so probably you get up in the morning, and then again, there's most likely a very strict organization that can be hierarchic or democratic that says get up pack your stuff, get on board and let's sail mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's um, that would that would be a start and that has to happen quickly and that is very similar to what we do today as well um,
0: and nobody want to wants to be the last guy packing his bag while everybody else is on the ship already
1: yeah I mean nobody, nobody... wouldn't mind I don't think yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, nobody wants to be that guy, um, and there are very few who are allowed to be that guy, right? So yeah. the ship is not going to sail without a skipper or or some, but but <laughs> but you have to have a good reason. So um, managing a ship that is uh, that has a crew of sixty to well, the the hawings and the sea stallion has a maximum of seventy six. Managing that amount of people as say as a skipper or or mate, one of your main titles is human resource management. Mm-hmm. So so you have, uh, you know, you set exact times when the when the tents have to be down, um, you set time, you know, you have people who are responsible for packing other people's stuff into the boat and it has to be in an organized fashion and the bags have to be on the key side at a specific time and they all have to be closed and ready. And so, so I think that that would be very similar. Um, to the Viking Age and, and to today, just pack it and then let's sail, because that's what we're here to do. Um, and then getting out sailing, again, you need to make a decision in advance which way you're gonna sail. Um, that also obviously defines whether whether you're going to sail. If you wanna go north and there's a strong wind coming from the north, you're gonna be like, okay, we're, we're staying here. Um, and in that decision, there's a big difference between the Viking Age and today. In the Viking Age, a day, a week, two weeks. It didn't really matter. Uh, for a lot of the heroes in the sagas, leaving the wife behind for a couple of years and yeah. another more years, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, you know, in, in Iceland, it, it's OK. They didn't really <laughs> care. Yeah, it so, yeah, should be fine.
1: She um, doesn't really like me yeah. that much anyway. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, was it Gudrun or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's uh, so it's basically um, that is a big difference, that that we, we I wouldn't say often, but we we end up with, for example, the Viking ship around around Denmark. That we we often go around the coast of Zealand because that's what is possible in two three weeks or so. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And you just don't have the time and you don't have the patience uh, of people or, or your own patience, whatever it is, to say, okay, we're waiting two two weeks to get up to Oslo uh, because that's when the wind is coming. Um, at the the voyage of the the sea stallion from Roskilde in Denmark to Dublin in Ireland, that was three weeks of waiting. It's a, it was a full crew change in Norway, just waiting for mm. wind. Um, and and then when you get out today, it's an adventure, and it's it's very far away from most people's office work or or everyday work, uh, and and people have to get used to it. That they get told, okay, you have. 20 minutes to eat now, or 30 minutes, or you have to do this now, um, or or you have to do this, and this might not be we might not be able to discuss it right now, or something's just happened, and that's just what it is, and you know it's cold or it's wet or or whatever it is, but we just have to do it, um, and that's very far for a lot of people from their everyday, um, and I I personally struggle sometimes with understanding that because my everyday does involve that physical day or or being in the elements and and being out to sea and and having that environment. But for the Vikings, obviously it would have been a fairly normal day. Like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's like every day out at sea, like, like the past 61 and the next,
1: right,
0: right. Yeah. Wet and cold again.
2: Yeah. 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 Um, but, but there is, there's definitely that that you go sailing and then you get as far as, as you want. I think, um, again, you know, we would try and achieve a point, um, with with our boat we would set a set a target. But if you don't know where you where you have to or want to go as a as a Viking raider, then you would be like, well we're sailing along we're hugging the coast and then when we see a settlement we'll get in trade and then when we have traded with them, then we'll raid them and get the rest of the stuff as well. Yeah. Right. Um so um so that would also be different that they, they might need to keep a little bit more lookout and be a little bit more ready, but I think they would still be less stressed about it. Um then we are not not getting somewhere,
1: yeah. um, right? So, yeah. we we had a question um a while back on the show um I don't know where you're at in in your listening but um uh, it was a question about uh, cooking and and food yes. um yes. for sailing so I, I'm sure that you can answer this I, I have a feeling um when they can they they cook on shore and and then pack everything up but tell us a little bit about what is what what do people eat and how do they prepare their food um I mean. Today, you know, you you eat chili con carne or
2: whatever. That sounds <laughs> no, great. <laughs> no, yeah. no um, so in the Viking age, most likely there was not a lot of communal eating. So um, everybody would huh. be because, especially on the trading vessels, but also on the raiding vessels. You know, you're out as a fighter on your own. So whatever bounty you're getting is yours. You give the the king what he deserves, but it's your slave. It's your loot etc um so that's also the same way that you come on board it's Mm -hmm. like it's your weapon um, it's your food that you bring on board and on trading vessels even more so you come to trade and then you pay for whatever area you get on the ship and then you travel with your goods and you sell your own goods so so i think that's that's where the organization and the democratic and communal part and the solidarity might shrink down Unless of course, there have been 20 people who are just lazy and didn't bring food with them, and you need those 20 warriors to defeat the Anglo-Saxons, sure, probably they'll get something. You definitely get a lot of fish, you' get salted meat, um, fresh meat as well. you know you would have chicken uh, you know poultry hanging up on the not the railing but maybe on the shrouds. Um, so it would be packed with, with a lot of, um, with a lot of meat. Uh, probably not a lot of vegetables, <laughs> um, but I mean, just a week is not is not is no reason for scurvy, um, and that's. You know, it takes maybe maybe two weeks from from Iceland to Norway, mm-hmm. when you when you have the fair beans. So, um, so that's, uh, so eating, I think it would be they would eat a lot less. Again, it would be a very different experience. You know, we're used to having I don't know how many thousand calories uh, a day. They would be used to not eating maybe for a day, sure. or, or or having having maybe less water that they drink, or mm-hmm. or anything like that. So um, or having less hot uh, hot meals. But I think when you talked about the show, I think everybody said, "Oh well, it, they most likely didn't have a fire on board." It's not that difficult to have a fire on board. Um, mm-hmm. um, I mean, a controlled fire. Like, yes. Yeah. It's not, well. to, it's,
0: not <laughs> it's not that difficult to have an uncontrolled <laughs> yeah, fire. Exactly, <laughs> it's it's not, not a good idea. idea. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but, 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 if, but having controlled fire, especially if you think about Norway and Iceland um, or Sweden, uh, the um, geology of the lands, you have enough slate, and, and slate is extremely good as an insulator mm-hmm. um, to build a fireplace that you just filled with sand, and then basically you have a controlled fire for whatever yeah. um mm-hmm. you know you don't really need that much hot water for for coffee or tea because you don't have coffee or tea yes <laughs> um, <so. laughs> which probably makes the staying awake at, at night watch a uh, very different but um <laughs> but it is but it is possible to have a to have a fire on board and uh, okay. especially if you're close to the coast and you would like to have a fire on board because it taps you with fishing yeah light attracts mm-hmm. the fish so and I mean we have from the Neolithic period, some of the dugout canoes had fires on board. Hmm. So there's no there's no reason to, to say oh well they, they didn't have it. You have to keep it under right. control, but but you can have it. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. So, Interesting. and just that we don't have just because we don't have one, I think the the absence of evidence in this case is not an evidence of absence.
0: Yeah, excellent. So. Uh, all right, so we're going to consider that one
1: solved. There you go.
2: I mean, I don't don't want to end up in the middle of some some massive debate, but I would argue for them having fires on board also because it keeps you very warm and not the fire Mm -hmm. itself. But if you have one fire and you put a couple of the ballast stones into that fire and they heat up and you transfer that warmth into whatever coat you have on or or cape Mm -hmm. or something like a hot, like a nice hot stone, uh, you know, especially if you're out camping as well, it keeps you nice and warm. Mm -hmm. So you just Mm -hmm. have. 70 hot stones that you heat up and everybody gets some warmth. I mean, there's no, there's no, absolutely no evidence for this, but I don't really see why, (laughs) but I don't really see why, um, why you, why you would not do any of these things. Mm -hmm. Where on the ship would you build that fire? Um, Well, this is, this is a bit bit more of a question. So, one of the, one of the good places to build it is the aft, Mm -hmm. because if you have it aft, there's always people around there, and it's easy to throw overboard. And you also it's also the calmest area of the ship. It's, it's it moves the least, gets the least of the of the choppy seas, and you have a lot of space um, for for the people compared to, for example, around the mast when there's a lot of rope hanging, where you have a lot of the the goods, a lot of the stuff that you're carrying with you around the mast. That's where you want to focus your your weight. So there is a big advantage for the aft. Mm-hmm. But then also in later vessels we often find the uh, uh the pantry at the bow. So in the foreship. Yeah. Um and that is also very good because if you have it in the foreship, it's also extremely easy to throw overboard and you have a lot of space and you always have a lookout up in the foreship. Um so I I would think that it would be in the aft, but that's probably also influenced by the fact that we have the pantry, the galley in in the aft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but I yeah. So um, that,
0: that makes sense to
1: me. Yeah. Huh.
0: Now, uh, we've kept you busy with Viking ships, <laughs> but I know that's not your entire field of work. Uh, can you, Do you want to tell us anything else about marine archaeology uh, in general and sort of what drew you into this? No. Uh, what kinds of things not. do you work on apart from apart from these ships that we want to know about?
2: Yeah. So what drew me in the field was that I am from Hungary. Um which is, as everybody knows, the world's greatest maritime nation, but um, <laughs> completely <laughs> landlocked. Uh, so, um, so what I did was, uh, I've been sailing for quite some time. When I went to university, I was very interested in, in military history and, uh, and then after due to different reasons, after, um, I finished, uh, my bachelor's degree in ancient and medieval history and culture. At that point, I've already been diving as well and um, and doing archaeology. So, diving, sailing, and archaeology um, have led me to a very good combination of mm-hmm. of maritime archaeology.
0: Mm-hmm. But wait, you skipped over the part where a nice Hungarian boy ends up doing a great deal of sailing and diving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where is that happening exactly?
1: I mean, uh, yeah, it's. Uh,
0: I was definitely like I
2: learned I learned swimming very early. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, but. Hungary, one of Hungary's national sports is water polo. Um, so I played water polo for a very long time, and that just brings you close to the water. And then there was a small lake in Hungary, and I had all loads of my friends in the sailing club, and that's where we would get away from. So the the whole idea of you know you, you're sailing, and then you're you're basically free. You you know the adults are not sailing, and then you go mm-hmm. straight. You, know, so you get away. That that was that was absolutely inherent to me, and then with the with the swimming like from the water polo and just being confident in the water, um, I was really interested in lifeguarding, so I became a lifeguard for uh, uh, for summer seasons. Being so close to the water, uh, I was like, okay, then let's sail bigger boats, uh, let's sail offshore, let's uh, let's do anything that I can that, that brings me close to the water. Um, and then at the university, there was a diving club, so I could start diving um, and and enjoy that very much as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so at that point I was, I knew that I would like to, to do something that I enjoy on a daily basis and, and being very active. Um, so, uh, I'm actually diabetic as well. So it was like doing sports was my everything. So, mm-hmm. um, wow. so I, yeah, so that's where, that's where it all, uh, uh, that's where it all added up. It just, um, just water, water, water and, and being a history mm. buff and an archeology buff and, uh,
1: did you have a, a, a particular professor in, as an undergraduate that uh, kind of influenced you in that direction?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, his name is Professor Terry Berry, Terrence Berry.
1: Okay. I, hmm.
2: I don't. I think that it's actually a, a medieval conference in the U.S., and I can't remember where, but it's like Minneapolis or…
1: Oh, it's Kalamazoo, Minnesota. Michigan. It's Kalamazoo. Is it,
2: is it Kalamazoo, Michigan? That, it has to I be the one. I think they have a prize. It has to be… It, they have, a, they have a Terry Berry Price, or Terence Berry Price, <laughs> and that's named after him. That's um, great. <laughs> but yeah, his, and so he travels there every year. Uh, but he is uh, he's an absolutely amazing uh, medieval uh, military history um, and, and fortification archaeologist historian um, who has also worked on Viking stuff,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, Viking fortifications before. Mm-hmm. And he's just been um, extremely supportive uh, so when I was an undergrad, um, and approachable, and um, there were several courses that I just took several times with him because I, I really, really liked, enjoyed it. And so yeah, um, so yeah, um, Terry Berry was uh, was the person who really, really got me into like, okay, let's do archaeology and let's uh, let's go for this. But I, I have to say that I studied at Trinity College in Dublin, and really, I enjoyed most of my professors, if not all of them. Um, I studied in, um, uh, in Switzerland as well uh, at the University of uh, Fribourg, and I had a professor uh, Regula schmid Keeling and she is uh, also a medieval military archaeologist, military historian. Um, and, and she was also extremely good uh, in just getting me hooked on on archaeology and archaeology of maybe complex structures.
0: Yeah, excellent. Uh, so, what is the so? Um, just to give you a chance to brag for a minute. What's the <laughs> most fascinating thing you've you've pulled out of the sea, or what's the what's the find you're proudest of?
2: Wow. Uh, yeah, archaeologists get this question a lot. Um, yeah. And it, it just <laughs> there's becomes, a reason for that. You yeah, know. exactly. It becomes more and more <laughs> difficult by the years. Um,
1: That's a good problem to have.
2: Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am not a Stone Age archaeologist, and I am not very. Well versed in in the Stone Age, but when I one of my very first jobs in um, in maritime archaeology was when with the Viking Ship Museum in Roskilde, um, it was excavating Stone Age. So contrary to popular mm. belief, the Viking Ship Museum doesn't really dig Viking ships. They they have dug mm. in the 1950s, sixties, <laughs> and then they do the reconstruction today. But actually, what they do is they do any sort of underwater um, cultural heritage protection in. That region of uh, of Denmark where they are that is their mm-hmm. their job and that involves a lot of stone Age archaeology so so when I first got got hired um, and started working with them it was Stone Age and I had no idea I mean you know i I am most likely guilty of having thrown away some <laughs> you know stone Age flakes or <laughs> so but I, I i I was you know, I was just reading up. Like after ten, twelve hours of field work, I would read at night. I would just read Stone Age, Neolithic, Mesolithic um, books to to get better. And um, but we ended up doing two very large excavations, um, both of them about a hundred square meters um, of uh, of underwater Stone Age sites. Mm-hmm. And on one of them, I was down, and the dive lasted six hundred and six minutes, so a bit over ten hours. That's
1: a long <laughs> when time. That- Wow! Yeah, one
2: in the morning, and I came up in the evening. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, and as I was going through one of the one of the excavation uh, boxes, you know, one square meter box, um, I came upon this object that was around about the size of my fist, <clears throat> and I thought it was plastic. I thought it was very odd mm-hmm. that it would have some sort of glass or plastic mm-hmm. block, and I was like, okay, well, this is odd, but I mean. I don't know what this could be. This is—it's just so weird. This is so out of mm-hmm. place. You know, you have—you have animal bones, sure. You we know, maybe found a few human teeth, and we have the, the Stone Age tools. But I was like, I'm not gonna put this into the dredger. We had the—we had a dredger that basically sucks like a like a vacuum cleaner everything away, and then it ends up in a uh, in a bag that gets sent up to the surface, and then at the surface they can sort through it. Um, mm-hmm. I was like, ah, this is, yeah, this is odd. I, I noted I noted down in, in my head where I found it, and then I put it into my pocket. I was like, i have to ask. But I, I also didn't want to want to look uh, like an absolute noob. Like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> so, so when I came up from the dive, absolutely knackered, and I took it out of my pocket, uh, the pocket of my, uh, of my suit, I was like, hey, guys, like, what is this? And it turned out it was, a, it was a piece of amber, literally the size of my fist. Wow. um that was worked on the top they started to cut and drill a hole in it and then abandoned it oh my god yeah i know (laughs) and i mean i am not a stone Age archaeologist but that was fascinating yeah that's great (laughs) so that i uh, that i really i I really really enjoyed and then um just just finding new shipwrecks is is always always a thrill Mm -hmm. um I have now found quite a few, or excavated quite a few on land, so behind sort of cofferdams, um, and just how they slowly take shape um, is really cool, and, and you slowly notice uh, small details uh, that you can see on mm-hmm. them. One of the wrecks that we excavated last year is from the 17th, start of the 18th century, and it has uh, little marks on the stem post, so at the front, at the bow of the ship. And they go basically like one little hole and two little holes and three little holes and four and five. And they're exactly a feet apart. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's the depth that's how that's the draft, the draft of the ship. Yeah. One <laughs> feet apart, going up the stamp post. One feet, two feet, three feet, four. Yeah. And it's just so I, I, I really find that um find the little details fascinating as well as just uh, the main things when you suddenly, you know, you dive down on an anomaly and uh and you go, you know, the surface asks you, "Hey, do you know what the anomaly is?" And you're like, "Yeah, I'm standing right in the middle of a shipwreck." Yeah, <laughs> <Like that's, laughs> I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain that that I know what the anomaly is. How exciting! Um, is. Wow. Yeah, um, we also had a not too far from this Amber site. We we had a find where it was. I drove down. And it was the same. It was exactly a story like this. Like I just jumped down. And they were like, "Hey, do you, can you see the anomaly?" I was like, "Yeah, I'm standing in the middle of it. It's a it's a wreck." Um, and the wreck was from the start of the twentieth century, so we said, okay, well, they were like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, we did. Maybe I did three or four dives on it. We mm-hmm. um, said, okay, yeah, we can just get it away because that's not protected. That's not really cultural heritage. There is no reason to to do anything about it. And we presumed a a Stone Age site underneath it because it was the right location. If you sink down the the water level, it would have been a a, a good location. Mm-hmm. So. We got that away, and then when the dredger started working, the big hydraulic excavator uh, started working. Suddenly, planks came up, and they were like, "These are medieval!" I like, huh. I, I got this shock. I was like, "I am so certain that was not a medieval shipwreck." that I just <laughs> let, let the
1: hydraulic excavator eat up, of it.
2: and it turned out there was a medieval shipwreck underneath it.
1: Wow! Oh, so these, these ships just were. So there's something yeah, about that particular spot. Just sandwiched. Yeah. Well. I mean, if it's a bad spot, yeah. when ships
2: wreck, well, there's yeah. going to be, within a thousand years, there was two of them that wrecked on the same spot. How interesting. <laughs> um, and they did end up wrecking over a tiny Stone Age
1: site. Oh, wow. So it was wow. actually multi-layered. Three, three in, layers of stuff. Three wow, <laughs> that's really interesting. How uh, did, yeah. This brings up a, just a real quick question. So you said that um, you know you identified it as a 20th century, and I can imagine how you did that, but yeah. then they're pulling up these these planks through the excavator. And they identified them as medieval. I assume fairly quickly. How do they? How can they tell it's a medieval plank? Well, um, if I were cocky, I'd, I'd say that you can smell it. But no. <laughs> if it was um, a movie, yeah,
2: yeah, it was a movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, I mean, you. One of the things is always the, the preservation. You know, the wood will be different. Yeah. So, um, but you will also see some. Very quick construction techniques, or the concretion of the iron. Yeah. Um, you will, to be honest, you could kind of smell it because uh, the tar has such <laughs> such a such a strong smell that it has to be <laughs> um, that that natural tar um, mm-hmm. at some point. But but that's it. You know, you you know how deep it is. So yeah. you're like, okay, this is definitely not the the latest one, but. Um, Um, but yeah, you can, you can, you can quickly see certain, Mm -hmm. certain features, whether it's the, whether it's the clinker, you know, but also in later periods, you're going to be like, okay, do we have any screws on it? it That screws, then it's past a certain period. Do you have any large bolts on it? Is that a certain size? Um, so yeah. Well,
1: Dana, um, our, the last question we ask at these interviews is always the same. And that is, um, do you have a favorite saga? I know you said you haven't read many, but, uh. Of what you've been exposed to yes. either through reading or through our podcasts.
2: Yeah, yes, I do. Um, ref the Sly. Ref the Sly. Excellent. It's I, great. <laughs> I, I just, you know, the, the wall that falls down and then he just glides <laughs> off and then he does outrun them, but then they catch up with him. So he makes sort of that handbrake turn. Yes. That they go. I mean, for somebody like me, yeah, that it has to be. It has to be to sly. Yeah, um, sure. That's
1: yeah. <laughs> that's really uh, good. You know, I
2: just imagine that Lego castle that that has the the, the wall that is falling down. Yes,
1: right. The drawbridge. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. with a ship just kind yeah. of shooting right out of it.
2: Exactly, and I mean, you know, with the dragon head up, and I think you know, two guys die under
0: the wall, and someone else. Die. it's yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now yeah. your next experiment then is going to be to put wheels <laughs> on a Viking ship. <laughs> <laughs> See if you can actually, actually do that kind yeah. of a launch. I mean, uh, yeah, like
2: at the at the launch, we do use a lot of a lot of tallow to uh, to make it slide in. Um, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, so uh, yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs>
0: wrap, wrap the slide.
1: Excellent. That's I, I, a I great go, answer. Great. Good great choice. Answer.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been wonderful. Uh, we're going to keep you on retainer, by which I mean we're not going to pay you anything, and we'll occasionally <laughs> bother you with emails. To answer our maritime questions, uh, so uh, hopefully uh, you'll be willing to hear from us again.
2: Please, please do do bother me. I uh, I'll do my very best to uh, to answer all these questions. Uh, it, Thank you so it's, much. It man. has been such a pleasure and uh, it's such an honor to to be on. I know it in a very small and probably nerdy circle. But I am so happy that. Uh, but it's our that, circle. That I can do this. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thanks very
0: much. Bye.